Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. A uh, real pleasure to bring a guest on today who, in my mind, is a legend in the comic book industry, been around for, for decades, uh, but still very much young at heart, still writing, still creating. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome to the show Christopher Priest. Christopher, thanks for joining me. Oh, anytime. How are you, Jace? I'm great, man. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm, I'm excited to, uh, I mean, you've had such a long career. Uh, I'm excited to, to pick your brain about kind of the, the state of, of the industry and talk about some specific things in your run. Uh, you're, you're, you know, you've had so many legendary runs. Um, maybe we should start. I, I mean, I mean, I know it's, uh, a lot of the people probably know this, but for I do have a lot of younger uh, listeners. So why don't you give us real quick, uh, you know, you broke in way back when. Uh, give us a quick, uh, you know, reminder of, of how you, you broke in at Marvel way back in the day. Well, I, I, I think I should start by pointing out that, uh, you know, the, that anytime someone appends the word legendary to your name, <laughs> it, it, it's code for, you know, old guy that we don't want to hire anymore. You know, so it's like, you know, it's kind of an emeritus status, you know, legendary writer, Christopher Priest, which means he's never getting the, the lead on Batman, you know. Um, but uh, sure. Uh, so uh, I broke into the industry, if that's what we want to call it, uh, in uh, way back in 1978. So in those days, Stan Lee was still working in the office and uh, every editor on Editor's Row uh, was also a tradesperson. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in other words, like virtually every editor and even most of the assistants who worked there, uh, they were also either a writer, an artist, a letterer, a colorist. They all they all they were all tradespeople uh, who took a desk gig to, I guess, augment their income or whatever the story was, because we nobody got paid much of anything right. in those days, and. Uh, so, you know, you know, like next door was Al Milgram and his assistant was uh, Joe Duffy, who was writing Power Man and Iron Fist at the time. And uh, and then, you know, uh, a couple of doors over, there's Denny O'Neill. Uh, my boss was Larry Hama, you know, uh, you know, down the hall from them uh, way in the back. You had uh, Marv Wolfman and Len Wein was sharing an office back there. Dave Cockrum was in the back as well. Marie Severin was the art director at the time. Uh, and then, of course, John Romita Sr. took that role over. Um, it, it was just uh, the place was stinking with uh, very talented people, writers, mm-hmm. artists, so forth. Uh, uh, I think the second year uh, that I was there, uh, they hired Denny O'Neill. He came over uh, and he became an editor uh, for Marvel. Uh, and he was uh, uh, right directly across the, the hall from us. Uh, and then Carl Potts, uh, Michael Golden. Uh, it was an embarrassment of riches. And of course, in the early days there, there was Stan himself. Uh, so I, uh, I, I had, an, uh, I landed an internship uh, there uh, and uh, I was 17 years old coming straight from high school. And uh, I was uh, the person, I was the gopher. I was the, the guy you sent to coffee and I was a guy doing, making all the Xeroxes and so forth. And you know, my first day there, you know, this, this, this young teenager, he comes running over to me and gives me a big hug and goes, you know, boy, am I glad to see you. And he takes this, this keychain off of from around his neck and he, and he puts it ceremoniously, puts it, <laughs> drapes it over my head. And it's the, uh, it's the, the, the key to the Xerox machine. It's like, you are now the key operator with a Xerox machine. Um, and that kid's name was John Romita Jr. 
Uh, uh, he was working in the bullpen at the time uh, uh, for his dad. So uh, uh, I figured I would work at Marvel <clears throat> for the semester. Uh, uh, and then it was, it was my senior year. So I figured I'd work at Marvel for the semester and then I'd go on to college and go become a lawyer like my mother wanted me to become. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, unfor unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, um, I just never got fired. Um, I, uh, after the internship, uh, uh, an editor named Nelson Yamtov, uh, gave me some freelance proofreading work. Um, and then after that, uh, uh, another editor named Paul Lakin, uh, hired me to come in after school and kind of look after his office. Cause he, he actually worked, actually worked from his home, but he had an office in the, uh, mm. uh, at the Marvel offices and he needed someone who could come and staff it. Uh, so I was coming in for a couple hours after school every day um, and it just kind of hung around. And, you know, eventually Paul Lakin was succeeded by Larry Hama. And when Larry Hama found out how much I was getting paid, he went to Jim Shooter and said, you know, they ended slavery, you know, hundreds of years ago. You, you can't do this. <laughs> right. You know, you can't the one black kid here. You know, you got you can't, you know, pay him like that. Uh, so it was Larry who, who uh, uh, convinced Jim Shooter to actually. Uh, formally uh, put me on staff uh, and give me a salary. It, it was a lousy salary, but at least it was a real salary. Um, and I, and I became Larry's uh, assistant editor and we, we did crazy magazine for a bunch of years. And then when that got canceled, I figured, okay, well now I'll go on to school. And, but, but no, then they gave Larry Conan and we started doing Conan and, 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 and Jim Shooter was mentoring me uh, and teaching me writing and so forth. And, uh, uh, and then Denny O'Neill hired me for Power Man Iron Fist. And, and I just kind of stuck around and, and, you know, my goodness, 41, 42 years later, here we are. Yeah. And I, what I find so interesting is, you know, coming up under those guys, they all have a distinct writing style, you know, whether it's the way Jim tells a story or, or Larry Hama, you know, obviously Marv Wolfman, Len Wein, all those guys. Um, you have a very unique style of writing, which is so different from any of those, but it, it feels like in your career, it took you a little longer to, to kind of find your voice, right? Like if I look back at things you did, like the, the Falcon miniseries in the eighties um, that you wrote, you know, more in that traditional comic book style. But then when we talk about things like quantum and Woody that you did at, you know, the first iteration of Valiant, certainly uh, black Knight. Um, most certainly Deathstroke that you did recently at DC, um, where it's that nonlinear type of, of storytelling that were, that really, I think defines your, your, the best parts of your career. Can you talk a little bit about developing that own unique voice and, and writing style? And it, it, like I said, it, it took you a while to kind of, uh, develop that. It seems. I don't know if any of that was really conscious, uh, conscious on my part, but I, I will say that Jim Shooter, uh, uh, invested a tremendous amount of time, energy, and, and ultimately money in, in, in me, among other people. There was a group of us that were being brought along. I think Kurt Busiek and Len Kaminsky, and there's a couple other guys who were trying to, you know, get established around the same time. Um, and uh, uh, Jim would uh, assign me to a variety of characters, and I'd write a bunch of inventory stories mm. that that he knew he was going to burn. And by burn, I mean, you know, he would probably assemble them all into this sort of stone soup of a, 
uh, of like a, a Marvel, you know, giant special, something right. that you'd see at Walmart or, or mm-hmm. one of the big box stores, you know, and it'd be like a, this 80 page blockbuster full of like stories that Jim bought from writers he was trying to train. Um, so uh, uh, learning from Jim, Jim had a, uh, Jim uh, had a very strong emphasis on structure and he had a very rigid sense of structure that could not be violated. So I had to learn that structure. And and when I became an editor, I had to enforce that structure at Marvel, which is why half of my writers no longer speak to me and (laughs) don't return my phone calls, you know. But uh, uh, once I passed from Jim Shooter to Denny O'Neill, I was a Denny O'Neill fan uh, from the moment I started to realize who these writers were. Once I figured out that Carrie Bates and Elliot Magan were writing action and Superman and so forth. And, and this Denny O'Neill fellow was doing uh, this phenomenal Batman thing with some guy named Neil, Neil, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and I became this craven Neil Adams fan. Uh, and in fact, I started in the business trying to draw like, I started as a writer slash artist. Mm-hmm. So I came to the interview for the internship with a comic book that I had written and drawn. Um, and uh, and I desperately wanted to be Neil Adams. I sucked. I couldn't be anywhere near Neil Adams. But um, uh, the fact that I got to meet Neil and that I actually know Neil today, um, I feel very privileged and honored uh, to have known him, uh, uh, to still know him. I'm sorry, still, of course, obviously Neil is still with us. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and to be the recipient of some terrific advice from him. Uh, uh, but Denny, uh, Denny was like a father to me. Denny was literally, uh, you know, family. He, he was a guy that, uh, you know, beyond the comic book gig that, 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 you know, uh, that I could call up and just chat up, you know, mm-hmm. or when I'm on the East coast, you know, that I would, you know, detour out to his house and take him to lunch and, and, you know, let's, 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 uh, you know, kind of visit with, with dad there. I, 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 I'm not ashamed to say that I loved Denny, uh, I loved him very much. And, uh, uh, and, and so, uh, Denny style, uh, uh, Denny, uh, David Michelinie, um, uh, some of Roy Thomas, particularly Roy's, uh, X-Men stuff that he did was again, Neil. Um, right. <laughs> uh, these people had a lot of influence on me. Uh, and I like to write in a sort of, I like to write real voices or at least as realistic as, 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 as I can. So I try to keep my ear open when I'm, when I'm interacting with people in, in life or, or even if I'm watching a film, whatever like that. And I try to get rhythms and, 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 and get a kind of an instinct for those voices. So um, skipping ahead to quantum and Woody, uh, you know, uh, this is the, the late nineties or, you know, or, yeah, right about the late nineties. Mm-hmm. So Fabian Niciesa, who is obviously, you know, uh, a big deal, you know, big deal X-Men, you know, writer, oof, yeah. Oof, I'm a big man. I'm a big man, Fabian. Right. So Fabian uh, 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 was hired over at uh, the acclaimed video games to develop a, a comic book line for them. Um, and uh, he, he reached out to me and uh, said, look, we would like to do like a buddy superhero book, something like Power Man and Iron Fist. And uh, and whoever he was talking to at the time said, well, why don't you actually call the guys? who did Power Man and Iron Fist, you know, stop screwing around, you know? So I got the call from Fabian and and we we talked about it. But the difference between Fabian and say 
working at Marvel, which was still under Shooter and ultimately under Tom DeFalco, who was another one of my mentors, another guy that taught me an awful lot, mm-hmm. um, was that at, uh, at Acclaim, it was like the kids were running the store. Right. You know, it, it was it was like, you know, Fabian was uh, that may have been the best work experience of my entire career. I loved, loved working at Acclaim. It was so much fun. And Fabian was like, so not the jerk. You know, he was so not the taskmaster. He was like the complete opposite of what I was used to. And 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 Fabian kind of freed us up from uh, the rigidity of the Marvel uh, template. Mm. And uh, and I got to explore different things and so forth. Uh, but at the time, I was doing a subversive book uh, at DC called Steel. Right. And and Steel, uh, I was working with my editor, Frank Pitteris, and and the phenomenally talented Dennis Cowan, who was also, you know, uh, a longtime friend. We were we were friends at 17 trying to break in, you know, right. uh, you know, he was working for Rich Buckler and I was over at Marvel. Um and uh, we were doing a, a subversive deconstruction of Superman uh, where we had like a dysfunctional Superman set in a dysfunctional metropolis, which was Jersey City. Uh, and he had like a dysfunctional Lois Lane, Amanda Quick, his uh, his uh, quixotic, I should say, uh, love interest uh, and a dysfunctional Jimmy Olsen, which is his niece, Natasha. Mm-hmm. Um, and and basically John Henry Irons was the only sane person in that book and everything else was like this sort of cynical deconstruction and, and commentary on the Superman mythos. Mm-hmm. And Frank and I, the editor, we had great fun putting this together. Uh, and obviously Dennis, cause Dennis, uh, the pages came in and, and Dennis had really taken the steel uh, design, which I always thought was no offense to the, to the artist or, or, or to my dear friend, Louise Simonson. I just thought that the steel outfit was just goofy looking. Uh, and Dennis in the name of God came back with this incredible friggin' design where he had just, it's the same basic idea of the steel suit, but Dennis had just so cowened it up mm-hmm. and it was just, you're talking about, you know, you know, my style being unusual. There's nobody that looks like Dennis, but Dennis, right. you know, and he had just so elevated my thinking about the character. And then uh, in the comic book, when Steele took his, his helmet off, I looked at it and went, this is Dwayne McDuffie. <laughs> you know, so I called, I called Dennis. I went, what are you doing? You're drawing Dwayne. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. That's Dwayne. It isn't Dwayne. <laughs> you know, and he swore, you know, through, through the whole thing that that's not Dwayne. But in, I, I guarantee you that was he was drawing Dwayne McDuffie. And so I shrugged and I said, well, screw it. I'll just write Dwayne McDuffie. So, uh, Anyone who knew Dwayne and for anyone who wanted to know Dwayne, I would invite you to go back to at least the first 12 issues or so of Dennis Cowan's and my run on steel. Uh, And you will see my impression of Dwayne McDuffie, whom I loved very dearly and whom I considered basically the smartest man I've ever met in my entire life. Um, and, and I'm like, well, what if Dwayne McDuffie was a superhero? So that's kind of, you know, uh, what we end up doing there. So I haven't read I was, that run in years. I'm going to have to go back now, probably this weekend. And, and, yeah. And it, it's, it. it's, it's, it's the deconstruction of Superman and it stars Dwayne McDuffie. But anyway, 
So I was already in that mindset where we were doing this and we were getting away with it at DC Mm -hmm. because no one cared about steel and nobody in editorial, at least was reading it, except obviously our, our editor, Frank. So we were flying well under the radar and no one paid us any attention until Frank left and another editor came in uh, and he said, no, 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 no. We want to make this a very generic Superman family book. We wanted to mold it back into the, you know, to the mainstream of things. And I lost interest in that and kind of drifted away. But anyway, so Quantron Woody started at the time when we were just doing the subversive steel thing. So, so Quantron Woody became almost an extension where I went, well, how far out on a limb can I go? Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, in comics, it's always like, hey, we would like you to work for us. We want to offer you this great deal. And by the way, you're six months late, right? So <laughs> right. Yeah. I had to do the first issue of Quantum Woody while I was on the road, while I was running around to conventions and so forth and working out of a hotel room. So uh, I literally was just making this stuff up as fast as possible. Uh, and, um, and I started moving things out of sequence because uh, it felt funnier and it felt like... Uh, uh, and I think I had this discussion today with my Vampirella editor, with with Matt Idelson. I said, the reason I work at a sequence a lot of times is that we've only got 20 pages and I'm trying to get to the good stuff. Right. Uh, I'm trying to get, you know, get to the stuff that the readers care about. And if I told the story linearly, I would lose half my audience because it would be issue three before anything happened. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, it kind of began like that. Now. When we got to Black Panther, I think you said Black Knight. Yeah, I think you meant Black Panther. Yeah, Black Panther. Sorry. That's okay. Marvel Knight. I was thinking probably Marvel Knights. Black Marvel Panther. Knights, Black Panther. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Black Knight. Okay. So when I got to Black Panther, um, I turned in uh, my first issue script. Uh, and it was a very traditional script, you know, from the jungles of Wakanda stalks right. the stealthy cat, you know, and it was a very sort of like once upon a time from the mists of the jungle comes the, you know, and uh, uh, I turned that in and went on back to whatever else I was writing. And like, you know, a week or two later, I got a call from Joe Quesada. He goes, what's this? <laughs> and I was like, well, that's Black Panther. And he goes, we don't want this. We, we didn't hire you to write this. We, we don't want a traditional Black Panther book, you know, and I had Joe and Jimmy on the Jimmy Pamiotti, mm-hmm. uh, and they were, they were conferenced in. Um, and he said, essentially, I'm, I don't remember the exact words, but essentially that, you know, we didn't hire you to do standard superhero. There's any number of people we could hire to do that. We hired you to do what you do when quantum and Woody, you know, uh, you know, we want that weird out of sequence thing and so forth. Uh, and, uh, and, and one of the caveats when they, when they talked me into Black Panther and, and there was some talking in, there was some arm twisting to get me to do it in the first place. But I said, well, one of the things that there's two things I insisted on. One is that Black Panther can't get beat up anymore. I, I just, I just won't tolerate it. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm writing Black Panther, then, then he's the badass. He's right. the guy that, that you got to look out for, you know? Uh, and then number two, I said, you know, it's going to be funny. And Black Panther had never been funny. And, it, and mm-hmm. I don't think it's all that funny now. You know, well, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to disparage anybody. I disparage anybody. I haven't read Black Panther in quite some time. But but, you know, I, I said, you know, there's no reason why, the, why we can't uh, put humor in the book in a way that does not diminish the character. You know, and, and I think we successfully did that where we added humor to the book while at the same time, you know, we retain the integrity of the character so that Black Panther himself was not the butt of the jokes, 
But if anything, Black Panther was the punchline where he comes mm-hmm. in and just clocks with this dough, you know, takes right. him out with one punch. You know, so uh, basically, you know, it was kind of a progressive uh, rebellion against the uh, uh, the Marvel template that I had trained on and that for years when I was writing uh, 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 the Falcon or, or Conan or Power Man and Iron Fist that I adhered to very strictly because th- that's what the boss insisted on. And then I enforced it when I was the Spider-Man editor and I was working with Tom DeFalco and David and David Michelini, which was a real joy that I actually got to hire David Michelini and, and, and work with him, uh, a tremendous, tremendously gifted writer. Um, you know, but I, and Peter, and then Peter David, which is a whole another hour of discussion, you know, uh, uh, a brilliant writer uh, uh, that I had to put through the meat grinder because I had to take this person who was uh, uh, incredibly creative and thought way outside the box in ways that that would never occur to me. Um, And I had to uh, 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 often have him rewrite his scripts into a more conventional form uh, to satisfy, you know, the bosses down the hall, which I right. thought was unfortunate. Yeah, when I look at something like uh, like the Falcon, and it's not that there's not um, something there, you know, um, maybe a little bit product of its time, a little bit of the the angry black man, and it's great to see how far he's come, you know, both in in comics, you know, being Captain America, and and now, you know, in the in the in the films and the MCU, he's going to be Captain America. It's a bit of an elevation, but it. it it was great to see the fact that, and I had no idea that you'd made that caveat. Hey, Black Panther's going to be the badass, right? Because it had gone from being, you know, here's the black guy. He's got to be the sidekick. He's got to be the weaker, you know, part of the Captain America Falcon team um, to get to a point with Black Panther of, no, he he is the badass. And and it's it was a long time coming. And obviously, we still have a, a ways to go. And then, you know, eventually to, to have the Black Panther film come out in a way like validating a lot of what you had done. Cause it, it pulled so much from, from what you guys did on your Marvel Knights black uh, Panther run. Uh, so that must've been a real joy for you to experience a lot of the ideas and kind of the, the characterization that you had developed for black Panther to see it up there on the, on the big screen. Can you talk a little bit about like, you know, black characters and, and how they have uh, evolved? Like they're no longer those stereotypes. I mean, it, it has gotten better, right? Uh, well, I, I think so. I think it's gotten better. Uh, I think now we're kind of in, 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 a, in, a, in an odd place that, that, that that's a little dangerous where, uh, like for a while, the industry had started, instead of hiring writers, they started casting writers, you mm-hmm. know, uh, right. like uh, I stopped writing comics completely for nearly a decade. Uh, uh, I, I got really disenchanted when... Uh, so the, I was writing Captain America and the Falcon and um, uh, the uh, there was a, a second a Captain America book being published by Marvel Knights. So the Marvel Knights Captain America book was going away. Um, and I thought that. Uh, um, uh, wow, I'm sorry, I'm, 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 I'm having a senior moment here. I thought <laughs> that my artist and I uh, uh, and, and forgive me, gosh. Wow, why am I having a hard time remembering his name? But I thought that the artist and I had done uh, 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 a, a really good job on Captain America and Falcon, and I felt like that we had earned our shot at the main book. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, when the uh, when they went from two cat books to one cat book, I thought, well, here's our shot. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I got the call from Marvel where they said, you know, we got this great idea. What we're going to do is we're going to take Captain America out of the book and we're going to relaunch it as the Falcon. And we're going to get you a number one and we're going to promote it and all this other stuff. Um, and it just felt like a punch in the face. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, at some point, over the years, I had gone from being a writer who was writing Spider-Man, who had relaunched Green Lantern, who uh, wrote Power Man, Iron Fist, and obviously Quant Woody and, you know, you know, this litany of stuff. And somehow I had stopped being a writer and I had become a black writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and this angers people. I'm not sure why. So maybe I'm not as woke as I should be. But, you know, uh, it angers people when I bring this up. When I say that, you know, uh, I don't want to be known as a black writer. I want to be uh, competitive on the same level as anybody else. I am a writer who happens to be black. There's no reason why I can't write any character. Why should I be limited to only writing black characters? But for nearly a decade, every time the phone rang, it was only from Marvel or DC. It was like, ooh, 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 we're getting ready to relaunch Black Goliath. And we're looking at you know, so, you know, that kind of uh, became an issue. As for Black Panther, I think the moment where Black Panther crossed the Rubicon and became sort of a player again was in our first issue of Marvel Knights. There's a scene where uh, he's chasing some bad guy and, and the guy is driving this Mustang and the guy drives the Mustang, you know, panic in a panic. He drives the Mustang off a pier and, and, and they go into the river uh, and, and then, you know, then you cut to inside the car and, uh, they're inverted, they're upside down inside the car and Black Panther has, has grabbed this guy, you know, and it's like a real Batman movie. He's grabbed this guy and he's snarling in his face and he's, and he's threatening him. He's going, you know, you know, from now on, you belong to me. You're going to do exactly what I tell you to do, or I will carve your heart like a roast, you know, or something like that, right. you know? Um, and we had not seen that. We had not, I don't think we've ever seen that Black Panther, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and uh, Mark Texera uh, working over Joe Casada's layouts, and, uh, uh, and and it was just uh, astounding artwork that just landed it where we went, okay, there's a new sheriff in town, and I don't necessarily mean me. I just mean like you know when I was when I was when I decided to take on Black Panther, I went back to Fantastic Four. I went back to Stan and Jack. Mm. And I asked myself, what did Stan actually intend for this character? You know, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I, there's been a lot of Black Panthers had a lot of daddies and had a lot of different interpretations, you know, and uh, a lot of great things have been added. A lot of different things have been added. But by that time, uh, Panther was kind of like the guy in the back of the class picture, mm-hmm. you know, um, it was like I, I, I was babysitting justice league for 10 issues i won't say i wrote justice league i'll say like i i was given custody of justice league because uh uh scott snyder was supposed to come on the book but he got delayed because he was writing metal you know uh and i said ooh, 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 i'll do it so i did you know this this very short justice league run and in every issue of my justice league every single issue at some point in the script i would stop and go where's aquaman because <laughs> I had forgotten Aquaman. Right. Like, Damn it. Where's Aquaman? You know, and I have to go back and go, okay. Cause every character needs to have some agency, you know, right. if you're writing a, a group book and, and I, I kept, I, I don't know why, maybe it's a mental block, 
you know, but I kept forgetting Aquaman. And, you know, at that point in Panther's history, when, when, when he became a Marvel, when he was handed over to Marvel Knights, he had become Aquaman. He would become this character that was kind of like, oh yeah. And there's black Panther, Mm -hmm. you know? So we wanted to actually restore uh, that agency, but, uh, and then uh, when we began that series, we got criticized a lot because now Black Panther had these gadgets and he had this high technology and his suit was bulletproof and people were offended by that. And in those days, you know, there was no email. People had to like actually write a letter. Right. You know, Jace, I mean, they, they licked a stamp. The, yeah. understand? That's how angry they were. Wow. <laughs> you know, and they walked this thing. Yeah. And they walk this thing to the mailbox to tell us what what what, you know, a-holes we were. Right. And, and we would get this stuff. And, and Jimmy and, 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 uh, and Joe and Nancy, you know, they would read this stuff to me over the phone and it would be hysterical <laughs> about these people, you know, just up in arms that Black Panther. We gave Black Panther an iPhone. How dare you? Because the iPhone hadn't been invented yet. There was no iPhone. And he thought, how preposterous that you could hold this thing in your hand and there's a picture and go, oh, come on, please give me a break. Right. And we would yeah. get letters like that. You know, and, and when I tell this story now at conventions, nobody believes me. They think oh, he's just you know, this eye rolling and like, yeah, right. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the purists were really offended. But if you go back to those, those, the first appearance of Black Panther, what do you see? Here, here's a guy who's rich. He is a head of state. He is a he is techno, he has technological prowess. He created he built with his own hands most of those toys and gadgets you see. Mm-hmm. He has this advanced civilization, and he beat Marvel's premier family team right all by himself, single handedly, and then laughed about it. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. And I went. I want to write that guy. What is the 1990s version of that guy? Right. You know, and that's what I did. And it pissed everybody off because over the years, people had forgotten who Black Panther was and, yeah, had, right. yeah. had, and they started confusing him with Tarzan. You know, mm-hmm. he's not Tarzan. He's never been Tarzan. And I hope he never becomes Tarzan again. You know, so to get back to your question, I'm sorry, I'm all over the place. <laughs> but that's what that's what editing's for. Just cut me out. Um, but get back to your question. Uh, yeah, I think that, you know, uh, that publishers are, beca- uh, are had become much more sensitive to, uh, uh, you know, the the uh, to how they approach these characters, to how they approach the characters of color how they approach characters of different sexuality or six different uh, 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 orientations. And, uh, and also with the advent of the internet, with the advent of the, 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 the tweeter, Twitter, what the thumbs, right. you know, yeah. with this, you know, uh, they've, they've, they've realized they have to become much more responsive. Uh, but now we've moved to an area where they're becoming incredibly, and in some cases, overly cautious. Mm. Uh, and risk averse because uh, now there's all this movie money at stake. Right. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of times when, uh, you know, I'm doing a storyline in Vampirella that uh, unfortunately I can't give away why it's going to cause a lot of noise 
uh, because then I'd be spoiling it. Right. You know, but uh, trust me, you know, we're, we're what, January 21st here. It's going to make a lot of noise. I'll, I'll be lucky to work in the business again <laughs> after this comes out because it's, it's incredibly controversial. Um, and I think that there's a, there's a real possibility of people being offended because, you know, uh, if I wanted to write a a lesbian Chinese serial killer. It's like, well, I have to be a lesbian Chinese serial killer. I mean, that's how that's how risk averse we're become now, where we're getting back to that casting of mm-hmm. writers as opposed to just hiring a writer, where I believe any writer, a straight white male writer, you know, uh, like like look at the uh, the TV show The Wire. Uh, the Wire was set in Baltimore, deal with a mainly African American cast and dealt mm-hmm. with uh, you know, African-American, uh, you know, with, with those issues. Uh, and it had some of the, 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 the most authentic uh, dialogue and, and authentic, you know, cultural references there. And who wrote that show? Two middle-aged white guys. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and now there'd be people like who would be offended and up in arms. Well, why don't you give a black writer a shot at the oh, stop? You know, um, I feel like when you start talking about, diversity in comics or diversity in hiring to me, diversity is not, you know, hiring me to write the black Spider-Man diversity is hiring me to write Mm -hmm. Spider-Man to allow me to uh, compete on an even playing field. You know, when I met Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, uh, who I have a great deal of respect for, but first of all, I said, why do you, why do you want to write comics? You have a real job. Right. You know, (laughs) I just didn't get that, you know, but uh, you know, uh, when I met him, I, I, I told him, so, you know, I, I told him what I've what I've said to, to other people. I said, well, you know, Marvel hiring you to do Black Panther, that that really don't impress me. If you want to impress me, hire Ta-Nehisi Coates to write Superman. That's right. a book. That's a book I want to read, mm-hmm. you know, because Superman has never been written by someone who sees through Ta-Nehisi Coates's eyes. Right. Right. So the closest we got to it, we're we're close to it because he's writing Captain America. And I'm I'm really glad to see that happening. But that's the kind of diversity that I'm talking about. Why should we limit, you know, uh, uh, somebody like Amy Chu to only write female characters? And I don't know that that's happening. I'm just throwing that out there. Right. You know, but why should we, you know, why should we put these barriers in place? Uh, You know, a, a writer is like an actor, an actor, a great actor you know, would consider it a challenge to play a variety of characters, ethnicities, even genders. And we're really not allowed to do that anymore. So, you know, uh, so things are better, Jace. And I think we're at a place where we're being so overly cautious that we're, we're limiting our horizons unnecessarily. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I've had conversations and, and I get why some people are, you know, they say, well, no, we, we need to acknowledge, you know, the, you know, writers of different orientations or what have you, but but my point, I, I, I tend to look a little farther into the future than that. Like for me, Christopher, when when we have succeeded is when the labels disappear and it's not a female writer or a black writer. You know, it's just a writer. Like yeah. I want to get to the point in our society where we the labels aren't there. You know what I mean? Like you no longer. And I may, maybe it's you know naivete on my part, but I, I want to get to the point where the labels are gone because you just they're just a person. They're just a human. We all have much more in common. Right. And we have, you know, different just because your skin's darker than mine. If you want to talk about like on a genetic level, our differences are what point zero 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 one percent, you know, like yeah. we are 
way more alike than different. So if we can get to the point where we're just all telling stories here, right? Because I, I believe that you can tell a lot about a society with the stories they they their fictions, the stories that they make. What's important to them? We'll look at the the stories that they make. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, and and well, getting let, more. Let, let me jump back in here. So yeah, what's interesting? What's interesting to me though, Jace, is that going all the way back to you know the shooter days, is that uh, I worked with shooter for I don't know eight years, ten years, however long that was. Um, at no time, at no point in our, our, our working together, did the issue of race even come up? Mm-hmm. It wasn't even discussed, at least not between me and Jim. Um, I mean, you know, it, it just, it just didn't come up. It, we, we talked about Iron Man. We talked about who is Spider-Man? Who is Peter Parker? What does Peter Parker want? You know, uh, I spent you know, a thousand hours on Tom DeFalco's couch, you know, uh, in his office where Tom is talking to me about story, about structure, about, Mm -hmm. you know, this sort of things. And at no point did either of these guys, either of those people, it just didn't come up, you know, it it really didn't. And, uh, 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 you know, at some point somebody pointed out, well, you know, you're the, you're the first black editor and, you know, and, 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 you know, when I say the first black writer, now people want to go, well, you know, this this black writer wrote an issue of this and that black writer. I'm the first black writer that was, you know, landed a series at Marvel or DC. I could, I, we, I think we can clearly say that, whatever. But I wasn't even aware at the time that I was the first black anything. I was just happy to be there. Right. And, 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 and these people were like family. And I, I literally, literally grew up in the halls of Marvel Comics, mm-hmm. you know, from a teenager to an adult. And uh, I, I never once really gave a whole lot of thought to the whole issue of race uh, until they did. Uh, Marvel did something uh, right after Farm Aid. Uh, I think Marvel did something called the. Uh, it was a, it was it was a, a charity book for for uh, famine relief mm-hmm. uh, in, in Africa, and uh, and they had advertised it as like you know. The, the, you know, our very top talent, the best of the best have gathered together and donated their talents. And we're doing this famine relief book, you know, blah, 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 and, you know and, and they were trumpeting, you know, this, this, this amazing project and, you know, and, and all these, you know, great writers and artists were donating their time. And I, and I went looking through the talent list and realized that there were no black people uh, invited to work on this book. So I was sitting in my office. I was the Spider-Man editor at the time and I picked up my phone and I called Larry Hama, whose office was down the hall. And I said, hey, Larry, did you look at this list for the famine release uh, 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 book here? You know, and he said, yeah. And I said, well, you know, did you notice this, this, there's no black people there's no working on it? They didn't invite any black people to work on it, you know. And he laughed for a second. He said, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll do our own you know, relief book for the, you know, for the poor white trash of Appalachia. Well, well <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. I don't want to put that on Larry. Well, he, he may have said something like that, you know, and no offense to the people of Appalachia. I, my family's from Appalachia. We're, we're all from Kentucky, from the hills of Kentucky. We're all a bunch of barefoot rednecks. So, you know, uh, I, I'm one of those people there. But we made this little joke. And uh, there was an editor who I won't mention who was standing uh, in the hallway outside my, my open door when I was having this conversation with Larry and he overheard me making this and we giggled about it and I hung up and I went on with my life. And I, you know, it wasn't that big a deal to me, Mm -hmm. but this editor overheard this and went down the hall and said, 
well, you know, Jim is planning this uh, this protest over this you know, famine relief <laughs> book. And uh, it got the No, I'm serious. And it got the whole office very stirred up. Uh, and then the editor of the of the family release book, you know, appeared in my office and she's screaming at me at the top of her lungs. And how dare you? And blah, 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 da, 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 this and that, and that. And now she's crying now. And it's this, it's this whole thing. And I went, I'm not, what are you talking about? I'm not, I, I just made a joke. I'm not, you know, and, yeah. and, you know, and it's one of these things, Jace, where, you know, where you catch somebody who did something wrong and they go on the attack, mm-hmm. you understand? Rather than just go, wow, this is really embarrassing that we didn't invite Dennis Cowan or Ron Wilson or, 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 you know, uh, any number uh, of, of, of these, uh, you know, people of color to work mm-hmm. on. The, you didn't invite any of us because we weren't the best of the best. You invited the best of the best, you know. Um, but I got really attacked for it. Um, and that's probably the, the first time that that race at Marvel, you know, was like all of a sudden this 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 issue, you know, where now Jim Shooter has to come in. Now he has to be dad. So he has to come in my office and now he's, you know, you know, he's coming in and he's like, you know, well, you know, we really don't want to cause a big, and, and, and it seemed Jason, it's like, no matter how many times I said that I wasn't starting a protest, that I made a private joke to my mentor and friend, Larry, we shared a moment of levity and we both forgot about it and somebody else went off. And, but it's one of these things that just, it's like the TV show, the office where it just escalates into this, ridiculous thing right um the only other time that happened was uh and this is the same editor by the way this these are two incidents same guy uh and i'm biting my tongue not to mention his name because i I just went you know why don't you talk to me why don't you talk to me don't go running down the hall talk to me right anyway so you know one day uh the the freelancers would come in and pick up their checks on friday okay and this particular friday the checks were late so uh, uh, there's a lot of freelancers in the office and they were all kind of milling about because they're waiting for the checks to come down. So in my offices, Trevor Von Eden, uh, Ron Wilson, um, Keith Williams was my assistant. So he, was, he worked there. He, he needed to be there. Um, Mark Beecham st- showed up that day. Um, who else was in the office that day? Uh, uh, Kyle Baker showed up that day. Um, there was like any number of uh, Dennis came in, Dennis Cowan came in that day. Uh, now, usually when these guys come in, particularly these guys, they would make a beeline to my office and they would park all their crap in there. So there was all of these backpacks and yeah. portfolios and whatever. So they would park their stuff in my office and then they go trolling up and down the hall to see different editors, or whatever. But they would end up, they would start in my office and they'd end up back in my office. And I had a tiny little office next door to the executive vice president, the publisher, <laughs> Mike Hobson, who was on the other side of this wall and would, and would pound on the wall and tell me to turn the stereo down. Right. <laughs> you know, so, it's, you know, this particular week, there was all these guys in my office. Um, uh, and, and also Joe Rubenstein. Joe Rubenstein would always make my office the, the, this first stop. Bob Layton was typically also parked in my office. Um, so anyway, uh, the following Monday, uh, Shooter shows up in my office and he's got this very sheepish look on his face. And he's like, I need to talk. To you. And I went, OK. And he says, well, it's been reported to me. And he does one of these. He goes, And I feel really stupid about having to bring this up, you know, but, you know, he asked for the editor in chief job. So he's got to bring it up. So uh, it's been reported to me. And I found out by the same schmuck from the first story uh, uh, that uh, 
that you apparently uh, you're firing all the white people and replacing them with black people <laughs> with a straight face. Right. I, so I don't I know how you kept a straight face. So I looked at him and I, I, I just didn't know what to say. So I just looked at him and I went, you know, uh, you know, and you have that Terminator moment where like, you know, all this data comes on the screen, like, you know, which answer to give them shooter, you know? Uh, and I just said, you know, uh, the answer in my head said, you know, uh, don't feed this. He's embarrassed enough by being here. Jim and I were very close, you know? Uh, in fact, they used to call me little shooter because, you know, I was like his protege. So I, I just looked at him and I said very softly, no, Jim, I, I'm not firing all the white people and hiring the black people. You know, and I said, well, you know, the reason why there were so many black people in my office that day was that the checks were late, number one. And number two is that the reason why they were in my office is that they feel welcome in my office. Right. And maybe and maybe that's a question you should ask, you know, some of your other editors rather than pick on me about it. Um, but just to make make sure we were all on the same page, um, I typed up this this notorious memo and distributed it to, you know, this is before email. So you actually had paper memos that you had to distribute with these inter-office envelopes. So I, I typed up this, this, this memorandum called, you know, the Marvel white supremacy memorandum. Okay. <laughs> and I, and in it, I listed all the African-American uh, uh, writers and artists that I was working with and particularly specifically what they were working on. So, yeah. So I, so uh, I wrote up this list of all the, the writers and artists the, uh, of color that were working with me. Um, and what they're working on. So people wouldn't think that I was firing all the white people or replacing them with black people. And I had this, this whole list, you know, Kyle Baker and Ron Wilson and Mark Beecham and so forth, you know, and Bob Layton, you know, because he's, he's so dark, he fooled me, you know, and, <laughs> and, and so I had Bob Layton and, and Joe Rubenstein was on that list as well, because, you know, he, he's kind of shady too. You right, know? So we put right. them all on the list there. Um, and we all had a, had a big laugh and, 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 and that was the end of that. But, um, it, it just kind of exposed, you know, uh, well, I'm just wondering, are people like really huddling around the office and they're afraid to talk to me about these things? Really? Because I just I, I never considered Marvel to be a particularly, you know, racist place. Uh, right. But then again, I really wasn't looking. Sometimes you have to look for it, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they're making Italian jokes and they're making Jewish jokes and, they're, you know, if they're, if they're you know, it was savagely. Uh, unpolitically correct uh, there. The, the only ethnic group that was safe was Polish people. There were no Polish jokes told at Marvel. Do you know why? Because Jim was Polish? <laughs> I'm sure. That makes you know, sense. Yeah. I never heard even one <laughs> Polish joke told at, 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 uh, uh, at Marvel. You know, but uh, uh, you know, uh, so if there were racist cracks, there was also sexist cracks and there were Jewish cracks and there were, you know, you name it, you know, um, and uh, uh, and we all gave as good as we got. And I, I never really thought much about it, you know, um, you know, until incidents like this would happen that would kind of expose like, wow. Um, but what really kind of broke my heart was that I considered these people family. Mm hmm. And instead of the, you know, the, the, the editor of that famine relief book, instead of her coming in my office and attacking me, why didn't you just talk to me? And the right. guy who went to her in the first place, why didn't you just talk to me? I would have told you, you know, nobody knows what color these people are. And the fact that they volunteered their time 
to, to do this book, you know, um, that, that's major. That That's wonderful, you know, and I'm happy for that. You know, I'm just making a little little joke and, and you kind of ex- expose yourself to that kind of humor. Let's right. be honest. But beyond that, you know, I'm not mounting any crusade, you know, and I don't have a chip on my shoulder and I'm not racially oversensitive. You know, uh, it, it's it's one of these things. But, uh, you know, there was lots of times where, where, where things would appear in the comics that were either offensive to black that I considered were offensive to black people or were just incredibly incorrect or inaccurate, you know, and it would baffle me. Like, why don't you run this by me? You Mm -hmm. know, I mean, I'm sitting right here next to Mike Hobson. You know, if you're not sure if this is, if this is savvy, whatever, why don't you show it to an actual black person? You know, and I had this happen, you know, even like within the last uh, couple of years, there was a project I was doing at Marvel, you know, uh, and, uh, and I got the notes back, like, you know, well, this is going to be really offensive. No, it was not, I'm sorry. It wasn't Marvel. Sorry, Marvel. It was DC. This is going to be really offensive to black people. You can't do this. You know? And I said, you're telling me yeah. <laughs> offensive to black people. And he said, well, you know, we got a bunch of people in the room. We went around the room and, and, and we all agreed that uh, we, we'd really rather not, you, you didn't do this. Cause you know, and I said, well, let me ask you something, this room that you were going around, were there any black people in the room? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, uh, no. And I said, you know, so so we got a bunch of white liberals who are going to tell me what offends black people. And that happens more often than you can imagine because right. of how risk averse everybody is. Um, but I don't know if they really understand how, like, ridiculous it is, you know, uh, uh, to trust your judgment over mine, particularly when. These days and times, Jason, nobody buys a comic book who doesn't know who the creators are because the creators are really what's selling the books even more so than the characters. So, you know, we know who Brian Bendis is. We know who Scott Snyder is, you know, Um, and uh, 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 certainly I think that people, you know, who are familiar with me or familiar with my work, they, they know I'm black, you know, which is not an excuse, but. You know, it is sort of like I, I hate to say it, but there is a double standard where a Jewish comedian can tell Jewish jokes and a black comedian can tell black jokes, but not vice versa. Right. right? You know, so, you know, I'm writing something now where I have like this black character saying some pretty insensitive things. And that's 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 passing muster. And nobody at D.C. is having a problem with that. But there's a Jewish guy, an old Jewish guy in the book, and I'm writing him uh, uh, like uh Curb your enthusiasm. Um, oh, Larry David. Larry David. So I'm basically parroting Larry David, you know. So somebody comes running out of a, uh, out of a door and is startled to see this character standing there, and he and, and he's an old Jewish guy, and he goes, oh, "Sorry for the uh, for the uh, for the old Jew stalking in the in the shadows bit," you know. And I got the notes back. Well, you really can't say that. You can say you know you can say uh, you know, all this the black stuff as much as you want, but you're not Jewish, right. you know. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a it's that double edged sword, you know. I mean, it's good that we're aware and we don't, you know, you don't want to take it too far. But yeah, it's I agree with you. It's it's and it like you said, it's so much to do with, you know, now that these uh, the big two are owned by these giant corporations and it's all about the the movie money and and you know when it first started happening when when you know Iron Man came out in two thousand eight and all of a sudden comic book movies became the center of pop culture, you know, as of lifelong comic fan I, I was excited and then after a few years when i saw how much it influenced the books 
And it was, it felt like it was removing creativity from the books and the books yeah. were becoming homogenized. I, I came to realize, and I believe now that it's actually a detriment to the, the comic. I think the success of all these comic book movies is actually a detriment because there are more eyes on it. And you, as a writer, as a creator, you guys just don't have the freedom that you once had. And I, I can't believe 12 year old me wouldn't believe that that's true. But <laughs> I've actually come around to that way of thinking. You know, I almost wish it was kind of still the underground thing that you didn't talk about, because then at least we'd get more original stuff. Now, that's not to say that in the creator known space and the independent space, we aren't getting, you know, kind of a golden age right now because there's some some fantastic stuff. Um, yeah. But when it comes to the big two, it's like feels like a regurgitation of, of sort of the same old thing we've had for decades. Well, uh, it's all the more ironic because the audience is not following us from the movie theater into the comic stores. Right. Exactly. And, and, and it's, it's kind of upsetting because, you know, uh, CB Sobolski, you know, has to, uh, he has to turn a profit on these books, which, mm -hmm. which seems ludicrous. <laughs> if you think about how many billions of dollars these properties are generating that, that CB doesn't get credit, does not get credit for, you know, um, I, I just did a, a U.S. agent series for uh, for Marvel that became a real eye opener because uh, I knew Mark Gruenwald. Uh, uh, he was a friend of mine. And uh, uh, when I uh, was approached to write this series, I don't know why, Jace. I just thought, well, U.S. agent. Well, you know, he's kind of a he's kind of an asshole. Excuse me. That's, but he's kind of an asshole. Who, I mean, if you go back to Mark's run, that's who he, he he was the character you loved to hate. Like you, dis if you were reading Mark's run at the time, you hated yes. that guy. He was, he was an asshole. A huge so, one. So, so I, I, I wrote him with much more edge than actually ended up in print. Uh, because there was a lot of things that uh, the editor that, that Tom uh, approved that later got, got notes back from mm. uh, standards and practices. You know, because they, they you know, they're, they're putting the character in the streaming series and, and they're, right. they're, they're very protective of the character. But these are two separate audiences, Jace, mm -hmm. you know, and it really frustrated me. And I'm sure it caused problems for Tom, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, I wrote a very different, <laughs> a very different character and it was edgy and funny. And he was, you know, but at the same time, while he was being. You know, I don't think that U.S. agent is necessarily racist. I think the point I was trying to make is that uh, he exists in this, 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 this alternate reality of his where uh, he is certainly not political, politi politically correct. Like he kept calling this the, his sidekick a Chinaman. Well, his sidekick was Japanese, you know, and and right. and, and 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 the guy would push back and give as good as he got and go, Hey jerk, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not even Chinese, but that's really offensive. You know, we, he would call him on the behavior. We would balance it out by letting him be, you know, uh, a bit offensive and then call him on the behavior. But we had to, uh, we had to round the corners off of a lot of that. Um, uh, and uh, had I known that going in, I probably would not have taken the assignment on because uh, uh, what, what interested me about the assignment was like the sort of, you know, uh, uh, untethered, uh, subversive version of Captain America. Right. And, and I didn't get to write that. I, I had to kind of clean him up way too much. I, I wanted him to be a much bigger jerk than he was in the comic book. Yeah, well, you wanted to go back to, to, to his roots, to what Mark 
Mark Green. <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and, and listen to what you just said. Like, think about that for a second, what you just said, Christopher. So you're, you couldn't have imagined when you broke in and first started, uh, you know, or, or not when you broke in, but when you first started writing, you got notes from standards and practice. What the hell? <laughs> Why is there a standards and practices division for a company that's making comic books? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, because it's it's you know it's a studio, but you know they're really I don't think the studio understands that these are two separate audiences, and the spillover is not the crossover is not nearly as uh, as great. So if you go back to Marvel Knights Black Panther, so uh, I had this character Everett Ross um, that I he was a transplant from my Kazar series, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> Black Panther's uh, State Department handler, and I based him. He looked like. Uh, uh, Michael J. Fox, but he talked like Matthew Perry from Friends. Mm. That was the speech pattern. You know, mm -hmm. uh, so I kept hearing Matthew Perry and that's who I, you know, uh, uh, desperately wanted uh, for the movie, actually. He would have been fantastic. You know, just that sort of like fish out of water, you know, uh, bit that, that he is so famous for. But um, if you go back and reread those first, you know, four of the six issues, whatever, of that uh, Marvel Knights run, um, the, the Ross character is saying some incredibly racist things <laughs> because the Ross character, the function of that character was to uh, uh, validate uh, the reservations of a white fan base that was mm -hmm. reluctant to buy a black character. So I wanted him to say all the things that I knew white fans uh, would either say or would be thinking. They may not vocalize it, but they're like, well, you know, here's a character that I cannot, I cannot identify with because he's nothing like me, you know, uh, and he has no powers. And, and why, should I, why should I buy this, this, this book about this guy from the jungle? You know, so, so uh, Ross would be saying these incredibly racist things, you know. He just assumed that Black Panther would uh, check into the walled off and order up some ribs, in, in, you know, and, and that would be like the end of it, you know, and, and, and Ross goes to pick him up at the airport in his two-seater Mazda Miata. And of course, Panther shows up with this enormous entourage with all of his people, you know, Zuri and, and all the, and the Doras and the whole thing. And Panther, not wanting to offend his host, insists that they must ride with him so he piles everybody into the into miata you know and, and, and this is this is the kind of fun that we had back then you know uh and then uh you know they, they end up in uh in new lots you know which is not a great area of brooklyn they end up in the new lots area of brooklyn you know and ross is very nervous because you know it's the you know, it's the hood and, you know, and, you know, he was told that there would be singing, you know, that people would be standing around garbage cans and, you know, it's doing this incredible harmony, you know, that's what he was looking for. And he's like, I was lied to, you know, <laughs> you know, and I could not get that through uh, Marvel today, that, that none of that stuff would fly today. It's, it would be considered way too incendiary and, and way too racist, you know, but all it was doing was opening a door for this particular group of readers and giving them a character that they can identify with. And also, you know, my vision of Black Panther was a very taciturn guy. He was a guy that didn't talk much. He talked less than Clint Eastwood. He didn't talk very much, you know? So I didn't want to have all these first person narrative, you know, and then I thought that I, uh, I ache, you know, the Chris Claremont stuff. And I love Chris to death. And Chris, I, I left him off my list. Chris, Roger Stern, 
these are people that I just, uh, amazing writers, amazing writers. Anyway, so, you know, I, I wanted, I needed the characters, the supporting cast to define Panther for the reader. So we saw, you know, my being sort of typecast as a black writer uh, after Black Panther just struck me as ridiculous because Black Panther was never about the black guy in the first place. Right. Um, black Panther was about Everett K. Ross and about his uh, 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 his cultural awakening and how and, and changing how he saw, you know, uh, this this man, because all he saw was a black guy. And he had to learn that, like, you know, uh, that that uh, uh, King, he's a king, by the way, King T'Challa, you know, uh, is so much more than the color of his skin. And that's the journey that uh, the character was on. And that was the journey that I took the readers on as well. Um, and, and I'm glad to see that after my run, because my run wasn't very commercially successful, but after my run that Reginald Hudlin came in and Reginald Hudlin really is the unsung hero of Black Panther because he's the one, he and John Armita Jr. are the ones who made Black Panther commercially viable. The, now the numbers are, are kicking in the high gear and the book got picked up all over the place, mm-hmm. you know, and now, you know, subsequent writers af- after Reginald and now obviously ta Coates and Brian Stelfreeze, you know, took it to like this whole other level, you know, but, 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 you know, it, it, it really kind of, uh, it really bothered me and it got me to the point where I'd rather just do something else than to accept this, you know, uh, uh, this uh, uh, cubby holding, you know, uh, this limitation, uh, not just on my skills, but on my person, on who I am as a person. Right. You know, well, he's a black writer. And I went, you know, uh, I wrote Peter Parker forever. And, 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 and with the Black Panther thing, I was writing Everett Ross even more so than I was writing Panther. And, and it's ridiculous for you to just limit me like that. And I'm, I'm really glad that at some point D.C., reached out to me and, and, and said Deathstroke. And uh, my, my first, my first reaction was like, is he black? <laughs> and, uh, uh, and the editor said, uh, no. And I went, okay, I'm, I'm listening. <laughs> you know, and we had a conversation about Deathstroke. So uh, it's, it's, it's rare in life that you get a second bite at it, that you get a second swing at it, that you get, another 15 minutes. Um, and then I started writing Deathstroke. Uh, and all of a sudden I started reading all these things online. Priest is back. Priest is back. And I, I never left. They left me. I didn't go anywhere, yeah. you know? Uh, and then I started being offered literally all kinds of things. And, and I'm happy to say that, uh, 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 I, I feel at least at the moment, I feel like, uh, that, uh, that I'm competitive, uh, uh, in, in ways that, uh, that, that I was not, that I hadn't been, uh, for, for quite a long time. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about Deathstroke because for me, that, that is your, that's my favorite thing you've ever done. It, 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 it you did so many just fantastic things. I, I want to dive into some of it, but I want to say one more thing about Black Panther and, um, and, and your point about the fact that, you know, you weren't writing a Black Panther book, you're uh, writing an Everett K. Ross book validated right away by those letters that you mentioned that you were getting. You clearly knew right, <laughs> that these were the things that people weren't going to get, you know, like, oh, how, he's he's supposed to be this guy, this 
you know, throwback Tarzan in the jungle character. Right. Uh, no, no. Just because he's black doesn't mean he's primitive or a savage or or whatever, you know, like. So you were on to it. And, the, and, and, that he, and, and that he's capable because Ross kept yeah. going like, you know, Mephisto's coming. You know, Mephisto shows up at the apartment and Ross turns to Panther and goes, should we call the Avengers? And Panther goes, why? And he just runs over and decks him. Right. Yeah, you know, exactly. uh, he's they're, they're walking down the street in, in Harlem and, and, and uh, or whatever, wherever this was. And, and, and Panther grabs some bad guy by his hair and, and scales the side of a building. You know, uh, I think that Joe and, and Jimmy and I and Nancy, uh, our editor, you know, uh, we were all on the same page that like, you know, uh, it's not like we wanted to turn Black Panther into a badass. Black Panther always was a badass. And he just hasn't been written like that in a long right. time. But yep. but go back to the, those 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 fantastic four issues, you know, and read that again and, and see how he just opens up a, a can of whoop ass on the Fantastic Four. You know, if he can beat the Fantastic Four, he can handle a couple of street fuck. Come on, Jace. Yep, 100%. All right, let's talk about Deathstroke, though, because because uh, here's the thing, right? Not that people hadn't done some some layering of, of the character of Slade Wilson before. You know, he, he'd had his own series, obviously created by Marv Wolfman and George Perez and, and fantastically, um, you know, well-received, a great villain. But But so many times he would revert to kind of this mustache twirling two-dimensional guy, right? You never wrote him that way. He was always such a complex character, like the, the way you portrayed his love for his family, but it was, you know, not a, in a traditional way, but yet you knew that he cared about his sons. Like, I just thought it was fantastic. So like, wh what was your in? Like what, what clicked for you when you, you know, accepted the offer to take the book that you said, okay, I, I know who this guy is. I'm going to break him down in ways he's never been broken down before and, and then kind of put him back together. Well, I don't know. Uh, well, first of all, uh, I was Marv Wolfman's intern back at uh, Marvel. Mm -hmm. So when I was 17, I spent most of my waking hours Xeroxing pages, Gene Colan's gorgeous artwork from uh, Tomb of Dracula, Tomb of Dracula yeah. over and over and over and over. I mean, Marv always wanted more copies of whatever the hell. Marv, please, Marv, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, uh, and then, of course, I was reading the Teen Titans, with the whole Deathstroke thing, and, you know, uh, Marv and, and George, uh, just huge fans of both of these guys. Um, so uh, the Deathstroke character... Uh, I, I had an affinity for the character and I liked the challenge of writing a villain because um, it's, it's the rare villain that was able to sustain a monthly title. And I realized that going in that that would that that might be, you know, uh, a hindrance that the guy is a villain. Um, beyond that, uh, uh, you know, I, I just at every opportunity want to stress, you know, Jeff Johns's involvement in this. At some point, they put me on the phone with Jeff and we had a discussion about it. And what I said to Jeff was that, okay, if we're doing this rebirth thing, if we have the opportunity to do whatever we want in terms of, of, of repositioning the character, then why not reposition the character in a way that translates more directly to streaming or motion picture or whatever, you know? Uh, so I want to do a very realistic take on the character. I want to, you know, you know, I'm more of the Denny O'Neill school, where uh, I desperately want to do my Green Lantern, Green Arrow series. Um, 
which which almost which actually got the green light at DC last year and then it got put on hold. So that mm-hmm. that may that may actually happen. But there's actually a first issue of that in the can somewhere. Oh wow. <laughs> of, a, of a priest green lantern green arrow revival. Um <laughs> I would love know. to read that for sure. And a whole new road trip, you know, with Ollie and Hal, you know. Um uh so uh you know I, I you know, I think one of my, I don't say conditions, but I just said, look, I, I'd like to do it if I could, you know, if I could take them seriously. And if I could, you know, uh, I just, I can't do the, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I right. can't do that, you know? Um, so uh, basically my, my whole idea was like, you know, you know, people, you know, not people, but the, the you know, traditionally the, the, the label given Deathstroke, like he's the world's, world's greatest assassin, you know? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that's not the book I want to write. I think Deathstroke is the world's worst dad. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, he's the world's worst dad. This happens to be his day job, but for Deathstroke, it's like an addiction. He, he, you know, he, he couldn't stop if he wanted to. In fact, our finale, you know, spoiler alert, my, our finale is, you know, uh, he had actually quit the business. Uh, and of course he got dragged back in because of, I don't remember anymore, but he had to save somebody or do something, but, uh, 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 actually some, some bad guy killed, uh, his tech guy, this guy, Hosun, who's actually a good friend of mine. So Hosun is like, Hey, I got killed in Destro. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, you know, and at the end of the series, you know, he has solved whatever the problem is. And he's, you know, going back to retirement and he's like, nope, I'm all done with it. He has put the sword in a glass case somewhere. He hung up his spurs and so forth like that, you know, but he really can't. He's an he's an addict. He's an he's addicted to to that lifestyle. And ultimately, you know, he he, you know, you turn around and he's gone and the case is broken. And he's, it was a fantastic you know. ending. It was perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so he was just a guy that. uh I looked at and I just asked myself all these questions about like, what kind of toll does that lifestyle take on a man? First Mm -hmm. of all, what drives him to do that in the first place? And then, you know, and and then I thought, well, you know, I I had written Captain America and Captain America, Captain America and Superman are two of the hardest characters to write. They just are because they're so good. Mm -hmm. They're so good, you know? And, and, and so with Cap, you know, uh, I was surrounding him with people who were less good. And for a while that included the Falcon where I had, you know, uh, the Falcon playing John Lennon to uh, Cap's Paul McCartney. And, you know, and together they made this great music, but they, they came at it from two very different directions. And, uh, uh, and, I, and, I, and, and, and Bennett, I'm sorry, <laughs> Joe Bennett. I'm so sorry, Joe, I forgot your name. This brilliant, brilliant artist. And he was, he was really just taking heads when we were doing Captain America and the Falcon. And I was so amazingly disappointed when we didn't get to, to continue um at any rate you know so you know with deathstroke i said well let me go back to captain america because his origin is absolutely captain america Mm -hmm. let's go back to captain america and 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 what did marv originally intend and only marv can speak for marv um but i i I said well you know he is a dysfunctional captain america Mm -hmm. you know uh he is a guy who loves and wants to be loved, but is capable of neither. Mm-hmm. You no, know, he is. Uh, if you ever see the show House MD, the Hugh yeah. Laurie series, he is House MD with a machine gun. 
you know, so he has, you know, a lot of those same uh, triggers and those same limitations where, you know, instead of just telling his daughter, you know, I would really like to spend time with you. And his daughter worships him, worships it. Rose worships him, would love to, to spend time with him. Rather than say that, he engineers this whole phony thing where like, you know, oh, someone's have to kill Rose. So I must, yeah. you know, take her into protective custody for her own good. <laughs> right. You know, um, and then he, and then we re, and then we repeated the same the same bit, you know, uh, of of Rose and and Destro going undercover and and they're going across country, you know, f, you know, to find the killer or whatever, the, the find, you know, and uh, uh, which is all fake, you know, uh, just because because he just wanted to spend time with her, and we repeated that whole thing only with Damian Wayne, and I love Damian Wayne. I fell so in love with this kid. I adore Damien. He is a hoot to write, you know, uh, and we did, we just did, I mean, and we repeated the exact same layouts and it's the same car, it's the same disguises, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, because uh, they're having this, this, this weird custody battle over Damien because, right. you know, it, it's, it's too complicated to explain, but uh, we did a whole Batman versus Deathstroke thing that, that was a lot of fun. Um, and at some point Damien finds out what's going on. And of course, He's not going to sit by the side. He's not. He's yeah. not the one to sit by the sidelines. Yeah. You know, so he just presents himself to Destro and goes, "Hello, father." Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and Destro's like, "I'm not your damn father." And he goes, "I knew you'd say that, father." <laughs> you know, it was, just, it was just so much fun. I just, I just giggled. I cackled over every page of that. And Venice. Uh, 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 wow. Ed Bennis, thank you. Uh, he just went to town and drew the hell out of that story. And uh, I, I'm just so grateful uh, to him and, and and so forth. But but yeah, Deathstroke was just a lot, a lot of fun to write because there was all these emotional trap doors. But you could see that uh, particularly when it came to toward the end of the series and his involvement with Damien um, was that... Uh, I think that in Damien, he saw the son that he lost, mm. you know, uh, Grant, the son Grant, that was, yeah. killed. you know, I think he saw in Damien and Damien, you know, oh, I despise Deathstroke. I want to kill Deathstroke. And he would kind of just ruffle his hair, you know, <laughs> I mean, he just, you know, I, I really think that uh, uh, when we were doing the whole custody battle thing, you know, I went, I, I was, I was begging for six months. I said, look, you know, you know, the whole question was whose father, who is Damien's father? Is it Bruce Wayne or is it, uh, was it Deathstroke? You know, uh, and I was, I was begging DC to let it be Deathstroke. I said, you know, uh, imagine the, just what, I mean, the hell that would break loose, Yeah. but, you know, and, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it's probably impolitic to say, but I will, I don't care. Dan said no. Uh, uh, cause, and I, I think ultimately it was Dan's decision. Well, we had big plans for Damien. We can't uh, upset those big plans. They had no plans for Damien, you know? I mean, they had plans, but they didn't have, you know, nothing that this would have. Yeah. Nothing you know, that, yeah. This would have opened up a lot of more story avenues. Oh my God. Yeah. Yes. It would, it would have been, it would have been hilarious. Yeah. You know? So I was at, uh, uh, C2E2 and I was having uh lunch with, uh, with, uh, Tom Brevoort and, uh, CB over and Marvel, you know? And uh, and I told him that story, you know, what, what we were up to at, 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 and that uh, I said, yeah, I wanted uh, Deathstroke to be uh, 
Damien's dad, but do you let me do it? You know, uh, and, and I looked at CB and I said, well, you know, you know, what would you guys do? And he just laughed. He said, are you kidding me? <laughs> we could have got a whole year out of like, you know, the search for the truth, you know, and yeah. we would have milked the hell out of that thing, you know, and, and it was just, you know, it, it's just one of those, you know, one of those moments. But I, I think that, you know, uh, there was a great affinity between Deathstroke and Robin, which is why they pretend to hate each other so much. Right. They don't, in fact, hate each other. You know, uh, in fact, there's like this, this this moment where where Deathstroke ends up saving Damien or at least pretending to save Damien, you know, uh, uh, and lots of, you know, or, or or or, you know, where Deathstroke wakes up and he finds Damien like standing watch. And mm-hmm. uh, and he has this moment where, you know, he's truly admiring, you know, this character. And if you really stop and think about it, Damien, the character is much more like Slade Wilson than he is like Bruce Wayne. Yeah. When I, when I first heard that, that's, I was like, okay, well that makes, to me, it makes more sense that Damien would be Slade's son than Bruce Wayne's son. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's, he acts, but he's a, Damien's a jerk much, you know, much more like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Batman can be a jerk too, but he's more kind of the cold calculating where Slade's kind of the in your face F you kind of guy, which is more <laughs> like, which is more like Damien. But, th- yeah. but the other thing that's fantastic about that run, like, it's so consistent for, you know, from issue one to issue 50, it's so much about, about family and about kind of the thin line between love and hate, right? Like uh, Slade wouldn't be getting so pissed off at his family members if he didn't care, right? He would just be like, whatever, I don't, I don't care. But the fact that there's so much animosity there <laughs> shows that there, there's emotion, you know, and, and it, it's just, it's so consistent. It, it's just like th- those 50 issues are just such a, fantastic run i i would say to anybody who hasn't read it any of you listeners definitely check it out it's but it's not a run where jump in jump out read this volume or that Yeah, start from the beginning yeah Yeah. you got to start from the beginning and you got to read the whole thing because it's you definitely had like a beginning middle and end uh such a journey for uh for slade um and he comes out the other side i think with a better understanding of who he is and we, I think we as uh, as fans and readers have a better understand, understanding of, of who he is. So, I, well, I, we I also like see that. we also see that uh, that that uh, Slade does have the capacity to love. He just doesn't realize it because we see him exercise that, you know, in in in, in several areas, uh, including with uh, with uh, Tanya, the the Black Power Girl. Yeah, you know, he absolutely falls in love with her, unequivocally falls in love with her, and and. You know, uh, and he's always conniving ways to bring her back into his orbit and so forth. Yep. Um, and then it was uh, 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 this, this, this. Uh, you know, I, I was able to do this this thing where we uh, we 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 had uh, Jericho, the son, the the deaf son. We had him uh, sort of come out as uh, a bisexual, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 you know, nobody really screamed at us. Uh, and thankfully, Marv didn't like, you know, assault me when I ran into him. He, you know, he, uh, you know, uh, I don't know where his stand was on that. But, uh, uh, you know, so uh, Jericho was involved with, uh, you know, one of Deathstroke's tech guys uh, who ultimately becomes like this monster. I don't want to give all the, the, the bullet points away, but the guy is like the guy that Jericho was involved with. He is. uh, uh a gay born again Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know many gay born again Christians. I, 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 I have 
my gay friends and I have my pastor friends and, you know, and sometimes their combination thereof. Uh, so, uh, I was writing what I know, you know, and, uh, uh, and I thought that that was kind of like, you know, a really, uh, you know, uh, uh, treacherous, you know, path to tread because you're bound to offend, you know, all kinds of people, you know, but, but the fact is, it's like, you know, uh, I don't believe that your spirituality need and your sexuality need to be mutually exclusive. Right. I think that, that, that I don't think that God makes mistakes. I think that we are who we are. And uh, as a pastor, my job is to uh, connect people to God and let God and people work all that other stuff oh, out, yeah. but not for me to, you know, you know, you know, you know do that it, kind yeah. of thing. Uh, so there was this issue, I think it was issue 20. I don't know how I got away with this, but I did an issue where almost the entire issue was narrated by passages from, from the Bible, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, you know, and we had this hulking, monstrous, murderous, you know, you know, creature, you know, uh, you know, and he's, and he's stalking through his cave, you know, and, and, and the, the narrative was like, you know, he was despised of men, you know, uh, you, know uh, you know, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we turned, we hit, turned as it was our faces from him, you know, it's that whole passage from Isaiah, you know, and I just knew that that was going to come like hurling back at my head so fast. <laughs> um, and yet it, it sailed through it and, 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 and it, DC approved it and, and it's in print now. And it's one of my favorite issues, you know, um, you know, there's a scene in that in that issue where, you know, the Slade is on the plane with with uh, with 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 his son, with Jericho and uh, uh, and uh, the, the, the the evil guy calls up to the plane and, uh, uh, and he talks to Jericho. And, and this is a guy that Jericho tried to kill, yeah. you know, and uh, and and uh, and the guy forgives him. He's on the phone. He goes, you know, hey, don't don't hang on to that. I, I forgive you. You know, and and uh, and Jericho just dissolves. It just it just breaks apart. You know, when he hears this, you know, um, but, you know, there's all this stuff where every now and then, even in Vampirella, which I'm writing now, every now and then. And thank you for this. My publishers will let me hang up my hang out my my, my pastor shingle, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 I get to go. Uh, I'm not proselytizing, Jace. I'm, I'm not trying to, you know. You know, if you, you know, if you want to worship fire hydrants, you know, and, and, and turn in circles, you know, I'm with you. I'll, I'll join you. I'll, I'll take a shot at it. You know, right. so I'm really not trying to recruit you for my my team, you know, but uh, I, I just think like, you know, the, you, you know, all over Twitter and all over the, the TV and so forth, there's all this hate and anger. Uh, everybody's angry about some anger, you know, and everybody's, yeah. you know, yelling at each other, you know, and I'm thinking like, you know, we should kind of like, you know give each other a break. And that's what that scene was about. That's what that issue was about. It was about forgiveness and it was about how much power it is when you let go of some of that stuff and, and uh, you know, and just hit reset and, and people can just kind of, you know, uh, move on with their lives. But, but I, it was, I was, that, I think it was issue 20. I, I was just amazed that that ended up in print. And uh, I think I posted an op-ed about it uh, uh, thanking DC, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and, and kind of pimping that, that issue, whatever like that. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> I got a call on Saturday from Bob Harris. <laughs> I've known Bob Harris for 40 years. 
I've never gotten a call from Bob Harris on a Saturday. Wow. <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> what, 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 what do you mean? You know, you know, you're posting, you know, and everybody's up in arms. I go, did you actually read what I said? I don't even know what that was about, but it upset so many people in the, in the ivory tower up there, DC. I thought they were going to cancel the book and, and send a hitman after me, you know? <laughs> um, and if you read that piece, it's, it's just, Thank you, DC, for letting me do this. I, 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 I didn't expect, <laughs> I didn't expect to be able to allow to, but yeah. you did. And I don't know why that upset them or why all of a sudden, you know, wow, you know, yeah. Saturday morning, I'm, I'm, I'm halfway through my Cheerios and my cartoons <laughs> and here's Bob Harris, you know, so go, go figure. Well, uh, it's a fantastic run, uh, everybody. And, and as is Black Panther. Um, and you mentioned Vampirilla that you're currently working on. So as, as we're winding up here, Christopher, it's been fantastic uh, talking to you. Why don't you let everybody know, uh, if you can, uh, anything you have upcoming that you want us to be on the lookout for and what you're currently working on? I so want to do that. that I, you know, there is so much stuff of mine coming out in the next 12 to 18 months that, that you know, you're going to just be sick of me. You know, uh, unfortunately, I have to wait for this stuff to be announced. Um, gotcha. there, no there is, you know, we're, we, we are halfway through our Dracula Vampirella thing. There is another Vampirella thing, you know, you know, waiting at the bus stop just on the other side of that. There's two, there's two series from DC that will be coming out uh, starting 2022. There's a Marvel thing that's wrapping up. There is a heavy metal series that will be oh, launching wow. in the summer. Um, uh, and there is a creator, uh, a book I created for humanoids that mm. will be launching uh, sometime this year as well. None of which I can tell you about because the off the, the publishers have not announced it, but they actually do exist. I am well, so great. busy. Well, I, that I mean, I'm just glad to hear that you that we have so much Christopher Priest because I was wondering if maybe you were just kind of winding things down again to go on another break. But it sounds like that's the furthest thing from the truth. You've been hard at work and it's all coming. I'm typing my little fingers off. <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, uh, maybe we'll have you back on when uh, some of these things uh, get announced to, to talk about them. Uh, if anybody wants to, to follow along with you, do you do any uh, social media? If anybody wants to know when these things are coming? I, I am not on social media. I'm really sorry. I, I have a website that I neglect. It's probably like, oh my gosh, it's got cobwebs on it. But there is <laughs> there is ChristopherPriest.com out there somewhere. And I should update my blog one of these centuries. I just haven't had a chance to get around to it. Well, uh, what I'll tell all you listeners is this, if you're big Christopher Priest fans, just make sure you continue listening to the comic source because when Christopher has stuff coming out, you know we're going to cover it. So uh, again, Priest, it's been fantastic chatting with you, man. Uh, I, I truly do believe that you, uh, you are a legend. You've done so many fantastic things, worked on just about every character there is. Uh, and, and yeah, for me, that Deathstroke just stands head and shoulders uh, above anybody else's. Not, I'm not putting anybody else's stuff down. Everybody else's stuff is great. Yours is just that much better. So uh, great chatting with you. Really appreciate the time. And uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Hey, thank you so much, Jace. And uh, you have a great weekend. We'll talk again. Yep. And to all you listeners, we really want to thank you for joining us. As always, appreciate the support. And we'll talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. 
Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.